Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up next on Forum, many black medical workers are now finding themselves on the front lines of two epidemics, COVID-19 and systemic racism. We'll talk with a panel of African-American medical professionals who are writing and reflecting on their roles during this time. Participant Dasha Savage writes, my brown skin is protected by blue scrubs, by a hospital ID that says Stanford and medical student in big blue letters. The black gunshot wound patients I meet in the trauma bay don't have that luxury. We'll talk with Savage and other participants in a Stanford program called Writing Medicine About Race, the medical system, and we'll find out how they are processing the events of today. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. As the nation grapples with two massive epidemics, coronavirus and systemic racism, there are some who are at the forefront of both, African-American medical workers. In this hour, we'll talk with black doctors and a medical student who have been reflecting on this time through writing. They're part of a Stanford program called Writing Medicine, and we're joined by Laurel Braitman, who is the director of writing and storytelling at Stanford School of Medicine's Medicine and Muse program. She runs free weekly writing sessions during the pandemic for healthcare workers and their loved ones. She's also the author of a book called Animal Madness, which we featured on Forum, and a forthcoming book, which I like this title, House of the Heart. Welcome back, Laurel Braitman. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a glad, real pleasure to be here. Glad to have you, a pleasure to have you, and also Pleasure to welcome Dr. Iris Gibbs, who joins us for this hour. She's Professor of Radiation Oncology and Neurosurgery at Stanford University Medical Center, also Associate Dean of MD Admissions. Welcome, Dr. Gibbs. Yes, welcome, uh, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have you, and also feel the same about Dasha Savage, who joins us as well, a third-year medical student at Stanford, currently working on her clinical rotations. Welcome, Dasha Savage. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Glad to have you and also glad to have Dr. Brandon Turner, who will welcome as well, resident now at Harvard Radiation Oncology Program. Welcome, Dr. Turner. Hi, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you and also want to welcome to this panel uh, Dr. Ajua Boteng, who's an anesthesiologist, critical care fellow with the Stanford Hospital, and we welcome you as well. Good morning to you. Good morning, Michael, and thank you for having us. I send greetings from the ICU. Well, I'm glad to have you. Uh, and let me begin with you, if I may, uh, because your situation, uh, well, all these situations are really unique, but you're probably the only one among our guests who is pregnant, and I want to talk with you about that. Congratulations, by the way, on being pregnant and about to have a child. Uh, but you also um, have thought a good deal particularly because of what happened uh, recently and all of the concern about racism that has been set off, all the catalyst for it um, that's been burgeoning about bringing a black son into the world. That's been on your mind, obviously, and uh, on your mind in some ways that maybe you could express to us. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, all of us as black Americans are, are dealing with um, a myriad of emotions right now, but certainly being a black physician, um, in the ICU and being, you know, nearly seven months pregnant with a black son um, who will turn into a black boy and very quickly be perceived as a black man. Um, something that I've been grappling with um, pretty regularly. To that point, you know, it's been almost nearly a month to the date that George Floyd was murdered. And quite frankly, Michael, I haven't even been able to watch the recording of his execution um, because to be able to show up each day and take care of critically ill patients requires a certain emotional and physical bandwidth. And to do that same job as a black physician and sometimes as the only black physician adds, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of an, an additional prerequisite and to do it while pregnant with a black baby even more so. So it's like, I physically, you know, cannot ingest the filming. I've, I've seen enough, I've read enough, I've cried enough and there's just too much at stake for me to suffer through that exposure and that trauma. And so, you know, we, we sort of have hazardly joke about it, but I 
I'm serious. When I give birth in a few months, um, because the risk of black female mortality, irrespective of access to health care, irrespective of how educated you are, um, is still five times higher than our white counterparts. You know, I'll be preparing a document to give to my husband and my mom that will tell them, hey, here are the, the labs that you need to look out for when the team rounds. Here are what you need to observe on my body if I'm too groggy or unable to kind of pay attention to those things myself because for, I cannot die, you know, my baby cannot die, I cannot die. And the trauma that we are seeing every day, I think just adds a subtle little level of cortisol um, that can be really deleterious for black mothers. And I refuse to be a statistic. Well, you mentioned your mom, and I think it's important to point out that uh, part of the writing program that we're gonna be talking about that you're part of uh, has been, I know, good and therapeutic for you, but you brought your mom even to the program. Uh, and when you were working with COVID patients, uh, they kind of had your they had your back and your front. I mean, they kind of kept you covered. Uh, your colleagues did because uh, there was concern about you being pregnant, and being exposed to COVID. That's correct. I think it was a beautiful moment. Uh, my family is all on on the East Coast in the New York, New Jersey area, um, and I'm in Silicon Valley here at Stanford. And so, um, to have that moment of respite um, through Laurel's program through writing medicine was 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 beautiful and lovely. I mean, now. Whenever you log in, there's over 100 individuals from all over the globe. And so to be able to connect with my mom over um, that aspect of humanities was, was gorgeous. Well, um, there you are in a, a department of about 100 anesthesiologists, the only black person there. Um, and that sometimes I know is a lonely feeling. So uh, at least you can give voice to yourself through poetry and through the writing you've done. Um, can you give us a sample of something you've done? Absolutely. Um, there's a poem that I wrote uh, shortly after, you know, all these events emerged um, in early June um, that I, I'd be quite pleased to share, if you don't mind. Don't mind at all. In fact, welcome it. Okay. On white paper, my brown hands write, brown man killed by bare white hands tonight. Yesterday, last week, last month, the one before that, last year. On Cape Coast shores, the wails of bodies lost still sing crying hymns amidst cerulean ocean waves. The stench of rotted flesh, feces, excrement, broken kin, pain and despair melt into the walls of Elmina's slave castles that cry out, I too sing America. Oh, America. Your promises otherworldly, dichotomous, even antithetical. Yesterday, we clapped for SpaceX, but yesterday, silence cut our souls more than your broken dreams. The empty glaze of glassy-eyed brethren logged into your Zoom, your conference calls, your meetings, wrote your memos, with thought-interrupted strokes typed your grants, wrote your papers, coughed to push down the bubbling of melancholy, only to retire to nightmarish dreams replayed on Twitter, wondering, do they even care? In anguish so deep, our body's bank account will not write a check it cannot cash. We avoid the videos, the poetic waxing, the political pundits as our spirits hum to our hearts, insufficient funds. My own womb whirls with the wonder of burgeoning black boy brilliance. Shielded, safe and sound, he sits in a sanctuary of warm love encapsulated by mommy's adoration. But today I pondered fleeing. They've robbed, they've pillaged, they've slashed, they've burned. How else do we ensure your child innocence is upheld? Whether I am not for her, she not for me, like two war-torn lovers separated by gunpowder and the sound of exploding chemicals, my son, maybe mommy and America just aren't meant to be together. On white paper, my brown hands write, brown man killed by bare white hands tonight. Well, thank you so much for that. That's a Joe Boateng, an anesthesiologist and a critical care fellow at Stanford Hospital. And uh, let's talk to Laurel Braidman, who directs the writing and storytelling program at Stanford School of Medicine's Medicine and the Muse program. And uh, Laurel, this has been, uh, I think, uh, hesitate to use the word perhaps, but a godsend to many people because it's allowed them to really, on the front lines, express what they're going through, but also express their feelings uh, in a very deep and emotional way, as we just heard. Uh, it's cathartic and it's uh, healing, I suppose, as well, we can say, because storytelling and poetry writing often can be healing. 
Um, let's talk about the program itself. It, it goes on every Saturday. Uh, it's been a real benefit to many people. And you got about 20% of uh, the people who are participating coming from all over the world. It's global. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I sort of felt like I was inviting people to a birthday party and I had no idea if they would come. And I just sort of waited uh, around hoping that people would appear. And I've really been blown away. Like you just heard what Adjoa wrote. Uh, the godsend is to me um, to be able to listen to so many people writing about what matters most to them, talking about what's broken in society, um, ours and others. Um, and, and talking about the problems and also the beauties of medicine. Um, you know, I think medicine has never been separate from culture. And if the dominant culture is racist, what, how could we possibly expect medicine to be different? And I think, you know, this is a really important time to be making work, creative and otherwise, about what matters most. Um, so, you know, this is one of the many things we've been talking about in this space. But I'm really just so grateful that so many uh, healthcare professionals, you know, from nurses to social workers to surgeons um, to the incredible people on this call um, have shown up to share really core vulnerable parts of themselves. Well, hats off to you and kudos for what you've been able to be uh, able to bring to this and what you've been able to put together in organizing it. I know you put out uh, kind of creative prompts each week and uh, they take them up uh, with some zeal and passion. Uh, the other thing about this that I was struck by in terms of uh, my own response was your personal involvement in this. I know your mother now is suffering from liver cancer and uh, or pancreatic cancer, excuse me. And that's been trying and hard. And I'm sorry that you're going through that. And I'm certainly sorry that your mother is as well. But I was thinking about the fact that uh, you learned a lot about this from medical workers uh, because you had a whole kind of spectrum of doctors. You had doctor on the one hand, a very consoling and empathic doctor, and on the other hand, a doctor who couldn't even make eye contact with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a few weeks before the lockdown started or the pandemic really hit in the United States, my mom was diagnosed and we found ourselves across the table from a lot of clinicians who were tasked with giving us some of the worst, most savage, terrible news you can give to someone, which is a terminal diagnosis. And, you know, I, I felt very much that there is a spectrum with how you can deliver that kind of news. Um, and yeah, uh, we, we had the great privilege of getting that news from someone who was kind, smart, patient, who answered our questions. And then we got the same diagnosis from someone else who you know, was insulted by our questions, who felt threatened, who tried to make my mother feel small. You know, it fills me with rage. Uh, also, um, you know, I, it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, I think medical training and education um, used to incorporate the humanities, which incorporates conversation and communications training and storytelling and writing and reading, um, but now much less so. And so I think anything that we can do to help physicians get in touch with the core parts of themselves to become better communicators, not only helps them when addressing, you know, raging levels of mental, uh, you know, mental health problems in our healthcare workers, which is a, a big issue, anxiety, addiction, but also really helps us, you know, if, if uh, the people who are walking us through some of the hardest decisions will ever make um, have training in how to talk to us and themselves with more compassion and clarity, um, everyone benefits. Yeah, and indeed, uh, I think the program has moved us forward in that direction. So again, kudos to you. Let me bring in Dasha Savage, who's a third year medical student at Stanford University, currently working on her clinical rotations. And Dasha, I, it's been tough for you as it has for all of our guests here, uh, particularly in the last few weeks and uh, the killing of George Floyd uh, and what's happened in terms of awakening and awakening throughout the country uh, of systemic racism, but also the pandemic. As I said in the introduction, these two things happening, it's made you think and be more focused on your black identity probably than you ever had been before, although you come out of Philly, I know, and that's a place where black identity is often forged, but it's made you think uh, not only of, well, being black, but also of your community to a great degree, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think 
the like COVID in itself, like all of the med students were taken off of our clinical rotations uh, for the safety of the patients. And it was kind of like a forced look in the mirror, like what am I doing in this moment? Um, we usually don't have that much time to take a break and do some self-reflection. And so I think I've been, I've been thinking about myself in like this community where I'm living now and also my community at home. And I think with COVID and the protests going on, it's a strange feeling. I, I feel like I can't, I can't not look at it. Like I, I go for runs uh, in the morning every day and there's like sidewalk chalk that says Black Lives Matter. And I've never seen that before um, around here. Um, and I've seen like pictures like close to where my grandmother lives of like the like armed forces walking down the street. And so like in a lot of ways I can't get away from it. And I like when I run, I wear a Stanford hoodie to make sure that everyone knows that, you know, I'm a safe person. But at the same time, I feel like I can't really do much. Um, I don't want to go out and protest every day because I'll be on the ward soon and I don't want to expose patients. Um, Plus, you got to take your boards, right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I have to take my boards. I skipped over that part because I'm really nervous about it. Um, and yeah, so I'm like in here, uh, my screen time says eight hours of productivity and 10 minutes of Instagram. I'm really proud of that. Um, so yeah, I've been studying a lot. And so I, I can't really focus on it. And I, and I feel really like chained up, like I can't express or even look at a lot of the things that are happening right now to stay focused. Well, I hope you can get through your boards well and uh, dedicate yourself more finding the time to your community because clearly you want to do that. And I think all of our guests today feel pretty much the way you do on that score. Uh, I'd like to have listeners find out about what you've produced in uh, the writing class uh, because it's a very empathic moment that you write about. A young black uh, man who is uh, in the hospital suffering a bullet wound uh, I don't want to give it too much of a preface here, but I was very moved, as I think our listeners will be, by what you were able to write and what you were able to bring to this uh, in terms of your own experience. Um, and also, your experience uh, has to do with just really trying to form that into uh, prose and prose that tells a story. So can you give it to us? Presented yeah, to us? absolutely. Um, so I wrote this piece in Laurel's creative writing class, and the prompt, uh, if I remember correctly, was talk about something that's really important to you. Um, and so this was really important to me, so I wrote about it. Um, My brown skin is protected by blue scrubs, by a hospital ID that says Stanford, and medical student in big blue letters. The black gunshot wound patients I meet in the trauma bay don't have that luxury. The cops hover around the beds like lions encircling a wounded animal. And our patient who was so brave for us, the medical team, our patient who fought back tears as we poked and prodded his wound, but took it as a personal challenge to cooperate despite the pain, now bristles with fear and mistrust and anxiety as the cops question him. I want to go to him because I recognize that he's wounded and alone and just trying to survive. And that just like me was taught his entire life that the police strip us of our ability and our will to survive. It is in that moment though, that I realize the patient and I, the only black people in the trauma bay are the only ones that believed that the police come into our lives to break us and not protect us. The rest of the trauma team buzzed around like busy bees, ordering x-rays, not even realizing the confrontation that threatened to break our patient more than the bullet lodged in his leg. So I'll, I stand close by, awkwardly watching over him because I'm an awkward person. And also because he needs someone with him to show him that he is protected because in this moment, when most people assume he is the safest, he feels the most vulnerable. He didn't feel safe in the hands of the police because they don't feel safe confronted by him, by us. But I was wrapped safely in a privilege that helped me feel protected. So I covered him and he noticed. I see you black woman, he said. He smiled, his eyes were watering and so were mine. 
That's a, a really extraordinary moment of connection, and thank you for reading that to us. And uh, I want to actually use that as a segue to bring Dr. Iris Gibbs into this, who's a professor of radiation oncology and neurosurgery at Stanford Medical Center, also associate dean of MD admissions. And uh, Dr. Gibbs, uh, you also wrote about one of those moments. You wrote about a moment uh, where, well, it was more than a moment. I mean, you made a real connection and bond with the black woman, uh, but it was important at this time for you to write about that. Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, as you mentioned earlier, writing for me has actually been catharsis. Um, I've had a sort of long, long career um, and where I've, you know, sort of transformed. Um, and uh, oftentimes patients are part of that transformation. Um, and so the story that I've I shared is one of a, a patient who I met a long time ago and then realized really uh, perhaps only after her death that we had so much more uh, in common in terms of our professional journeys and experiences. She was a professional black woman, a lawyer, and uh, someone yeah. who you got to know rather intimately because, uh, well, when she died, her husband sent uh, her memoir to you, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Falling up from grace. Uh, this was the story of Linda Mabry. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she was a phenomenal woman. Um, and I really talk about um, how humbling it is for me every day, um, you know, walking this journey, um, particularly because there were so many before me who who did not survive and not because they weren't resilient and not because they um, were not determined, um, but because of this system which I still find myself uh, entrenched in. I think, though, is it safe to say that you and, and perhaps some of the others can address this as well have opened up now in some ways that you didn't foresee or didn't think possible? I mean, you were kind of playing a lot of your cards hold uh, close to the vest, I guess is one way I can put it, uh, not necessarily being all that revelatory about your own vulnerabilities, uh, but th now you're talking about issues more and you're writing about them. Yeah, I think I've always felt them. Um, certainly, um, but um, the idea that I could share these um, and have that confidence that others could understand, I think, um, you know, was ne was not really there. This moment is um, a little bit more, um, it feels a little bit closer to a reckoning um, where others who could show the hum their humanity, what human couldn't, watch this eight minutes and 46 seconds um, without at least some sense of of outrage. But it feels different in this moment. And, and I, I feel that maybe the time is okay to share with others so that they can really understand the, the extent to which um, this sort of trauma is not just simply outside of our institutions, but are happening oftentimes every day here within our institutions and perhaps together we can find a way uh, to uh, bridge the, the divide for the, for the next generations to do better. I, I, I certainly welcome that kind of sentiment, and I think it's great that you can feel that way. And I uh, also want to recognize the fact that you're even thinking, making the link, thinking that perhaps you'd like to use some of your background as a scientist to investigate uh, racism in terms of uh, how it mutates and how malignant it is and ways to understand it in ways that we can understand perhaps some of the enigmas behind the virus that we're dealing with now. We're talking uh, about, well, with a number of black medical workers, part of a writing medicine program at Stanford. We'll talk some more with them. Uh, uh, Brandon Turner will join us, and you can join us. Give us a call if you have some thoughts, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny, and we're talking with black medical workers. They're part of a writing program at Stanford. Laurel Braitman is the director of that program, and with us, Dr. Iris Gibbs and uh, Dasha Savage uh, and Dr. Joa Boteng and Brandon Turner. And Brandon Turner, Dr. Brandon Turner is a resident with the Harvard Radiation Oncology Program, but was a number of years at Stanford in Palo Alto. And uh, uh, Dr. Turner, I think I'd like to begin by asking you about your first COVID case. I think it was a Latina in an emergency room. It was a pretty severe case. Uh, it taught you a lot. What did it teach you? Hi, Michael. Yeah, you know, the first case that I had was actually the first confirmed case in my hospital. And at that time I was at Kaiser in Santa Clara. And, you know, there was really this shroud of 
mystery over the coronavirus. Um, there wasn't a lot of information about it. There were suggestions that it could spread within the U.S., but we didn't have the information or understanding really about how it spread and, and what we needed to do as medical providers. So what feels completely foolish now, uh, looking back on it, but we went into the room with the patient without any mask, no PPE whatsoever, uh, thinking that she just had a normal respiratory infection, maybe pneumonia. And I was examining her. She was coughing in my face multiple times. That happens uh, in medicine. And, you know, you sort of shrug it off. And over the course of a few hours, a lady who had walked in, you know, feeling slightly unwell, uh, but overall seemed like your standard garden variety infection, decompensated to the point that she, within a few hours, was flipped over, prone uh, in an attempt to improve her oxygenation. She was sedated, intubated, paralyzed in the ICU. Uh, you know, the whole medical team was really shocked at the ferocity of the disease. And at the time, it, it seemed completely uncharacteristic. And I couldn't believe that someone so young, she previously had no other health conditions, uh, was suffering in this way. But as data has continued to flow in, it later started to form a picture that I think the whole nation has started to, to put together now, which is that people of color, uh, and in this case, it was a Latina, they do have a risk factor. And the risk factor is being a person of color. And while she pulled through, so many have died. Um, people that shouldn't, people that don't have access to healthcare or have inadequate access to healthcare or, or don't see physicians frequently enough to take care of some of the chronic diseases that are completely treatable. And so I realized in her case that she was one of the lucky ones, but uh, really emblematic of the suffering that was taking place across the country. I'm wondering if uh, recent events have changed the way you think about your role and also your career. I know you've uh, uh, indicated that you feel safer inside a hospital than being a black man out in the streets, and that's uh, quite a statement in itself, uh, I, the hospital being sort of a sanctuary. But a as a doctor, I know you feel more control. Uh, so talk about it. Yeah, it, it was not an experience or a feeling that I expected. Um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, there's a great deal of suffering and anguish inside the hospital. And yet, with the recent coverage and uh, video footage related to the death of George Floyd and, and, and many others, the hospital did become my sanctuary. It felt like a respite from suffering. And there are moments that I've you know, really thought about, what does this say about what's happening, the suffering that's outside for Black Americans? And if I'm honest, there's a tendency for a lot of us to describe this as two pandemics that are taking place. And really what's happening to black Americans is not new. This has been going on for years, for centuries. In fact, uh, being black is a life sentence. And for a very long time, it has been associated with death at many hands, at the hands of a virus, at the hands of an officer, at the hands of uh, a citizen who feels empowered with a gun. Uh, it's a life sentence that you pass on to your children and to their children, and you know that everyone in your family all suffers from the same risk factor, which is being black. And this is not new. And I agree with Dr. Gibbs that it does feel like this current moment is different, like we might be having a reckoning. But at the same time, I almost feel scared to think it because we've been here so many times before, so many moments where I thought this is the reckoning, this is the moment that society will actually value our lives and will care and be outraged by our deaths sufficiently to actually demand change and make sure that happens. And at the moment, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I've been hurt so many times thinking about it that I often just don't want to think about it. And I instead focus on what I know I can change, which is inside the hospital. Well, I know you've uh, certainly felt compelled to want to do more, um, but you have such responsibilities now. Uh, I mean, as a physician and the program you're in and so forth, uh, it makes it hard to really forge forward in terms of service to your community, to the black community. Uh, and uh, so does this arouse some feeling like 
Maybe you got to get off the stick here and do something, uh, even feeling guilty. Yes. You know, I, I definitely have felt in these sorts of moments, I, I want to do something to help. I have to figure out what I can do to help. And in this moment, especially with the combination of the deaths going on with the virus and sort of the um, flare of police-related violence, I felt really powerless and like there was so little that I could do. And I felt guilty about that. I felt guilty about not being able to offer anything outside of the hospital and that I was just another black man. But part of what I also felt guilty about was I realized even within the hospital that there was so much of the black community that I hadn't checked in on, I hadn't engaged with. You know, there are staff members, nurses, uh, techs, unit assistants who I had nodded and sort of exchanged pleasantries with, but I never really talked to about what their experience was. And after this happened, I did. I went and talked to many of the ones that I'd seen all the time. And it was really shocking to me to hear some of their stories. And um, it was really moving to hear the way that they were grappling. And they experienced things that as physicians were insulated from. There's a certain amount of power that you have as a physician that you're not exposed to um, comments or behaviors that uh, other members of the community would feel. Yeah, let me go back, if I may, to you, Dr. Gibbs, on this, uh, because you're in a pretty strong position of authority and a very high position indeed. Uh, and yet I know you've experienced some microaggressions. Perhaps you could talk about that, but also that feeling like you need to do more. You have to do more. And maybe this is the moment of reckoning, but what to do and how to do it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, but, you know, I, I, I agree with um, sort of, uh, Dr. Turner in that we have some level of sort of insulation. And I really love the way that um, uh, Dasha, you know, talked about having uh, this white coat. For me, that white coat has constantly sort of been this cloak of protection uh, but more recently, over the last several years, I felt that the superpowers have sort of, in fact, lost some of its um, uh, some of its power. Like to the fact that I felt more recently, not now, but in the in the years leading really up to to now, that really it was indeed my blackness that was you know most indelibly felt um, by others. Not my expertise, um, not um, that sort of appreciation by folks that. Really, I would go to the ends of the earth for them to make them feel better, the kinds of, you know, human emotions we want to see in, in our providers. But for me, um, um, I do believe that, you know, as a cancer doctor, it has been quite revealing in this um, pandemic um, that um, when we see things all told in the end, we'll see the the numbers of in, uh, uh, rising deaths are related to what we what we call is uh, related to uh, COVID-19, but that will be grossly underestimated uh, because um, the social determinants of health suggest to us that um, even cancer care will be delayed, deferred, um, and that with the economic snowball even on top of that, um, that individuals will um, likely not get care. Um, and that is, those are gonna be the numbers that are uncounted. Um, and for us, we always want to keep doing more. Um, I want to do more uh, to make sure that that um, does, not, uh, does not happen or is mitigated to some degree. But what COVID has told us, a totally brand new disease for which all of us should have been equally susceptible to find such um, health inequities. It should be just reviling to all of us um, and make all of us um, try to try to figure out a better way where people can be treated more more equitably and have um, and see uh, you know uh, better and more similar outcomes. Well, you talk about uh, the protection of your white coat and uh, how that gives you the identity as a professional, as a medical doctor. Uh, and yet, uh, there was an incident, I believe, when. Uh, you didn't have that white coat, and someone assumed, uh, therefore, that you were the help. Do I have that right? Yeah, I wrote a, I wrote a, you know, a piece some years ago where, you know, I don't know if it just all came to me all in this one day where I just wanted to just get peace, and I went, you know, did a run in the morning, came in, and 
And, um, you know, I always came in at, at this time. I think this one was probably during the time of my residency or early faculty appointment. Um, and I'd always try to come in early, start start my, my day early uh, where no one else was around. Um, and I did always um, very, very uh, deliberately um, wear my white coat, but I I rushed out of my office thinking nobody really was going to be around. I would get a cup of coffee <laughs> and come back. But as I was coming back, um, I someone had spilled something, and they said, "Excuse me, hun, <laughs> can you please pick this up?" You know, and there there are parts of me that you know I am always going to try to be gracious to to folks because I oftentimes know that things are not may not be intentional in the forefront of their minds. Uh, but yes, um, when I did. I agreed to help, and then I picked up the phone to call um, the janitorial service and and pretty loudly said, hello, this is Dr. Gibbs here, <laughs> um, you know, uh, because sometimes folks, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize. Yeah, but you let her know. You let her know. I did. I did and, in that moment, but I think it is important for me to, for folks to be able to preserve some dignity in these moments as well. Um, I have felt that much of my journey has been really um, focusing on the other person, allowing them to preserve this. But I'm probably more likely now to allow people to roast a little bit in that discomfort, because I do believe that it is those um, getting outside of our own comfort zone is where the learning actually happens. Um, and I'm, I'm more challenged to, uh, to to doing that a little bit more. And that moment was really important to me because, you know, my dad was um, a uh, custodian um, and I um, just believe that we need to honor every single person in the team. Um, and uh, I, he is the reason why he and my parents are the reason why I'm here today. Well, let me once again give out the number. If uh, any of you listening would like to join us, you can do that at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. Like your responses or any thoughts you might have, uh, talking about a lot of things, certainly about uh, racism and about the pandemic, but also about writing and writing as a release and a catharsis and a way really to get your um, emotions out there. You can join us also by getting in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any thoughts you might have or any questions for any of our guests to forum at kqed.org. And Dasha Savage, let me go back to you because uh, I'd like to know about well, where we are in your judgment in the present moment, I know you felt the sting of racism in, in ways that uh, almost every African-American has, uh, but you're more optimistic now, more positive in this moment? Yeah, I think I think it's hard to really say. I think Brandon said it very well, like kind of cautiously optimistic. Um, I know I said that I was afraid to go to the protests, but a friend uh, was handing out masks and water at one of the protests. And so I did end up uh, going to help out with that. And I was really, it felt like such a surreal moment to stand like on a street that I've gone to all the time. One of my favorite restaurants is on that street. And there were just like hundreds of people standing there holding Black Lives Matter signs and like, it was, it was a strange moment for me. I felt really emotional. Um, pretty much everyone there was, uh, was white or not black. And it felt like there were so many people that like were awake to the moment. Um, but I believe that that's not like all we need. We don't need to just be awake. I think that's definitely the first step and I'm really happy that everyone is taking that step. Um, but then I also looked around and I saw probably the most black people I've seen in Palo Alto uh, since I've been here, maybe about 20 or so of us. And um, I just want I just want there to be a world where there's more of us and you can hear more from us. And I can be in like an operating room learning from someone who looks like me. Um, and I can like at least have that part of like the nervousness of being a student and being in an operating room or being in a clinic like that part. Um, I don't have to carry with me anymore. Let me read some comments that are coming in here. Jessica tweets, I've been with Kaiser San Francisco my entire life and I have never had an African-American doctor. My dad was recently in the emergency room at Kaiser San Francisco, and we had a black doctor attend him. As a fellow black person, I immediately felt comfort, which is pretty much what you were saying about the surgical rooms, uh, Dasha Savage. Here's Lois who says, I'm a Stanford alum undergrad. I live in Piedmont. 
I'm Black. Thank you to all of the presenters for sharing their stories. I especially appreciated the comment about Black moms, mortality related to pregnancy regardless of education or access to health care. 32 years ago, I had a stillborn at 29 weeks, 31 years ago, a miscarriage, 30 years ago, birth of a healthy baby girl having been on bed rest for three months. Be well all. And another tweet uh, from a listener says, I'm so thankful for the Do No Harm Coalition at UCSF and new generations of medical students. They are more willing than previous generations. I've experienced at UCSF to advance social justice, provide field care during protests, and actively work to transform medicine and the world for the better. Let's talk, uh, if, if, if we may, uh, with you about making the world better, uh, Joe Boteng, uh, and Dr. Boteng, again, is an anesthesiologist and critical care fellow at Stanford Hospital. Uh, I think when, when Michael Brown was killed, um, and you can perhaps fill in the blanks for me here. Um, you were in this department, as I said, of 100 anesthesiologists, pretty lonely from your perspective, I imagine, being the only black in that group. But uh, they weren't even talking about Michael Brown uh, at the time. And to you, it was uh, pretty significant that they weren't. Now you feel maybe there's more talking, there's more openness about things. Yeah, so um, when Michael Brown was killed, I was, I was a resident. Um, completing training on the East Coast. And um, like many of us are describing, you know, we, we sort of live in, in two worlds. I think it was W.E.B. Du Bois who talked about this peculiar sensation, like a double consciousness of always feeling as though you have a two-ness. An American at that time, you know, we were called Negroes, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled. Yeah, warrants. forgive me, it's my scholarly hat. He called it dual consciousness, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Double consciousness. And so how that manifests now is like, you know, when Michael Brown died um, and similarly, you know, when George Floyd died, and was murdered before this uh, sort of national narrative, there is silence by a lot of our peers. And so it just felt as though no one cared. You know, how can you watch someone be executed and not care? You know, I'm an anesthesiologist by training. And so the statement that I can't breathe is something that you know, I thought so deeply about because I'm very attuned to breath, right? I can look at someone's pattern of breathing and within minutes have a running list of what's happening in her body. I've spent years digesting and dissecting textbooks about breath, about lungs, about ventilator, spirometry, all of these things. And, you know, taking care of patients in the ICU similarly re requires this ability to look at every ion of a patient, right? Electrolytes, checks, x-rays, EKGs. And so my point in all of this, um, as Dr. Turner was describing, when COVID arose and we very quickly adapted and, and read literature and, you know, just consumed all the data that was coming out um, by mountains full each day, um, we were able to save lives to the best of our ability, despite the death toll. And yet with the second pandemic that we're talking about, um, colleagues feel speechless. They feel flabbergasted. We all can talk about the emails and the text messages that we've received saying, I want to help, but I'm not really sure how. And so, you know, even that is like a, a, a complex conversation, right? Because when you are the only one, you sort of get tasked with helping those so that they can help you. Um, but at the same time, you have to make sure that you're representing your communities and that our voices are heard appropriately. So, you know, there is certainly movement, I would say in, in our departments and various departments across uh, Stanford to try and reverse some of these ills that have plagued our society and hurt black Americans for so long. Um, but it certainly is gonna take time and it's gonna take an effort beyond the media cycle. And I think that's what needs to be impressed upon is when the next, you know, telltale incident arrives that steals the media attention from what is happening, our lives will remain, right? So as Dasha described, patients will still arrive shackled. Um, many of us will still worry about our unborn babies. Um, many of us will be the only ones in our department and live this double consciousness, but we still need the assistance of others to push the pendulum forward. Well, I know you certainly had the experience of understanding health disparities to a greater degree when you were at Santa Clara Hospital. We can talk about the bubble of Stanford or, you know, to what extent it's different than many of the other hospitals. Uh, but I want to bring a caller on here, and that's Dominique, who joins us from Nashville. Dominique, good morning. Hello. 
Yeah, hi, Dominique. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, so thank you all for sharing. Um, I was just wondering as I was listening, um, and um, one of you all started to answer it already, but this moment um, has been talked about as a reckoning for Black physicians, but what have you seen your non-Black colleagues doing in response to this moment, or what would you like to see more of? And I think that was just kind of answered a little bit, but if anyone else has thoughts on that. Yeah, it's an important question, and I thank you for it. Can I go to you on that, Brandon Turner? Dr. Turner, are you still with us? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm sorry. I just wondered um, what your thoughts were with the question that was posed by the listener. Are you seeing difference in your white colleagues? Mm. You know, I, I think that I have. Absolutely. I have never previously heard a general discussion um, sort of as Dr. Boateng was saying uh, about deaths and things happening in the black community. And uh, this was uh, definitely a moment where multiple individuals were talking about it. It came up in meetings that we had in our residency group. Uh, so I think the conversation has started and I think the uh, awakening, maybe I would call it, has started. I think what I would like to see more of is a serious commitment to marshalling resources. You know, the COVID pandemic came first. And what I saw in response to that was pretty incredible. You know, resources were marshaled, protocols were put in place, um, processes were questioned, people, data was collected, people were held accountable. The healthcare system is capable of responding to crises. And what I would like to see more of is that same machinery being employed against a pretty ancient crisis, actually, within American uh, healthcare, which is the disparate outcomes for Blacks and many other individuals of color. And so that's what I would like to see, uh, process change, commitment to change, things that will persist beyond the uh, personal initiatives of some of the staff, uh, getting actual structural change in place. No, we're all with you there, I think. Uh, let me bring another caller aboard. Peggy, that's you. Peggy's joining us from Philadelphia. Peggy, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm actually Dasha's mommy. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I have a question for the Stanford uh, professors. Um, so when Dasha was, was accepted three years ago, she was actually the only African-American accepted in her class. And I'm wondering, has any of that changed at Stanford in the last three years? Have you done like an active recruiting model to recruit African-Americans in your medical program? Well, I think that question appropriately goes to you, Dr. Iris Gibbs. Yes, this is Dr. Gibbs. Um, so I would actually say that Dasha was not the only African-American in her class, but we um, uh, certainly have been um, working to make sure to diversify um, uh diversified medicine and um, we as admissions deans are, are sort of those, those gatekeepers. Uh, and uh, with regard to that, we, we have a, a strongly committed mission uh, to ensuring that um, the future of medicine is much more diverse. And I'm happy to actually announce that at least as far as we can see right now, we begin our classes in, in August, but we will have a class that is 37% um, underrepresented in medicine with more with nearly a quarter of the class being um, African American so um, this is why for me certainly it is a challenge for our as dr. Turner mentioned our institutions to really be ready um, to um, embrace um, this new generation of diverse um, um, physicians not just ethnically and racially diverse um, but folks with um, a range of abilities um, and disabilities, those um, who come with uh, different uh, gender identities, um, different uh, geographic uh, locations. And so it has been my mission to ensure that um, people um, of, of these varying backgrounds have a place in medicine so that we can really benefit uh, from their talents. And beyond that, as well as Dr. Turner was saying, I do believe that we are the next challenge really is um, for the institutions to examine themselves we are in the process right now of really making um, demands, really, that, um, that just like every other institution that we're seeing that re is reexamining themselves, the boards um, uh, that we see that are the decision-making bodies here really need to have uh, voices, not just a sense of tokenism, but the, the sense of real um, 
uh, efforts towards making the lives of everyone um, to, to, to be safe here uh, in our institutions. So thank you very much. And thank you, Peggy, Dash's mom, for that call. appreciate hearing from you. I'm going to read a comment from Janet who writes, I'm sure it'd be far worse if I were a person of color, but even as a white woman, I've experienced pretty awful treatment at the hands of doctors that I feel sure had to do with the fact that I'm an older woman. I'm a timid, non-confrontational person. Nevertheless, I've experienced doctors not listening to me, but instead minimizing and dismissing my symptoms, leading to misdiagnosis, complete lack of eye contact and rude words. And we did a whole program on that on Forum, uh, which I believe is in our archives. Laurel Braidman, let me go back to you. We're almost short of time here. What's the future of your program? Well, I've promised everyone that I will keep going as long as people keep showing up. Um, so I have no idea. I am trying to learn how to live day by day in this pandemic, uh, something I've never been good at before. Um, but it's important to have goals. So uh, we are meeting every Saturday, 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, it's free. You just have to sign up. People can go to writingmedicine.org or my website, laurelbraitman.com. They'll both lead people to the same place. Um, and they can, if you're a healthcare worker of any type uh, or you love someone who is, sign up, join us, and uh, see what stories you might have within you. Well, I thank you for being with us, Laurel, and I thank you for the work you're doing. It's important work, and it's uh, something that's very close to my heart, bringing together the humanities and the sciences. Appreciate your being with us this hour. Laurel Braitman, again, is director of the writing and storytelling Stanford School of Medicine's Medicine and the Muse program, and she runs the freely writing sessions during the pandemic for healthcare workers and their loved ones. Thanks to Dr. Iris Gibbs, who also joined us, professor of radiation, oncology, and neurosurgery at Stanford Medical Center, and associate dean of MD admissions. Good to have you with us, Dr. Gibbs. Thank you. And thank you, Dasha Savage, a third-year medical student at Stanford, currently working on our clinical rotations. And thanks to Brandon Turner, resident of the Harvard Radiation Oncology Program now. And thanks to Joa Boteng, anesthesiologist and a critical care fellow at Stanford. Thank you all. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.